We are so excited to announce that we're going to be running a new motherhood support group. Starting September 8th, Sina and I will be leading a 10-part group to help reduce stress and cope with the challenges of new motherhood. This workshop offers new moms with babies from zero to one weekly group sessions that cover issues such as body image, the impact of motherhood on relationships and identity, mindful parenting, and self-care. The new motherhood support group will provide a space for connection, safety, and empowerment as we embark on the journey of parenting together. You will leave this workshop with a better understanding of motherhood and friendships with other new moms. The workshop will start September 8th and be on Thursdays from 12 to 1.30 p.m. You can register on Eventbrite, link to our website and Instagram at lovelink.co, or email us at info at lovelink.co if you want to learn more. Hope to see you there. And it's a world that, you know, I didn't know at the time, but it's a world that for centuries shamans have been entering an indigenous culture. So I've come around to believe, number one, these parts are very real. They're not metaphors. They're not imagined. And the world they inhabit is quite real. And what we do in that world has huge consequences for what happens in the outside world. Welcome to Lovelink, your guide to love and connection in all forms. We're your hosts, Simone Humphrey and Sina Simon. Our guest today is a psychologist and the creator of a treatment model called Internal Family Systems Therapy. The model is based on the premise that we are made of different parts that carry different personalities and that these parts communicate with one another. Our guest has published over 50 articles on internal family systems and five books, including You Are the One You've Been Waiting For in Internal Family Systems Therapy. Sina and I have personally been trained in and used the model's techniques with our clients, and we've found it's very helpful in cultivating self-compassion and understanding the self in a non-pathologizing way. We're so excited to welcome Dr. Richard Schwartz. Okay, so um, thanks for joining us. Happy to be with you guys. Yeah. Um, How are you doing during this time of corona? You know, I feel guilty saying it, but I feel pretty good. I I, uh, needed a rest, and I'm getting to know my wife for the first time, really. (laughs) Mm. Oh, that's nice. So, uh, you know, it's... it's, uh, I feel guilty saying that because so many people are suffering so much. But, uh, and if it goes on a lot longer, I'll start to crawl out of my skin. But right now, I'm catching up on things, and yeah. That's a beautiful thing. Where where are you right now? I'm outside Boston in a town called Brookline. Okay. Have you been seeing uh, clients over Zoom? Yeah, yeah. We, yeah. We moved all of our trainings online, so we're very fortunate that we can do all this uh, without having to be in person with people. Right. So it hasn't really hurt my business so far. Yeah, we're lucky as therapists to still be employed and, and to still have a, a bustling business. Um, yeah, we're in a very privileged position. Also, I mean, I know a lot of people who've, who've gotten even more referrals now, um, which is both unfortunate, but also, um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm very grateful that we can still continue to work. Me too, and it, it really, 
eats at me that there are so many people that can't afford what we do. And yeah. compounded by the fact that they're the ones that are suffering the most. So it's challenging that way. Right. Yeah. So to start us off, um, you know, we're curious to hear about uh, internal family systems, this model that you created. And, you know, a lot of our listeners are therapists, but many are not. Um, so I'm wondering, yeah, just how you would explain the model to the average person who may be seeking therapy or interested in, in being a IFS client. Yeah. So I'm still working on the good elevator speech after 40 years almost. <laughs> but the um, basic idea is that we all have these different parts of us, that's my word for it, that are little sub-personalities inside of us, and <clears throat> that that isn't a sign of pathology to have them, that's actually what we call thinking is the dialogue among them. So if you think of a dilemma in your life, you'll have one part will say, go for it, and another part will say, oh no, don't you dare. And uh, you know, most of the time we don't think twice about that, but if you were to slow everything down and focus on one of those voices at a time and get curious about it, you would find out it's more than just a thought pattern, that it actually has a lot to tell you. <clears throat> and that it got pushed into the role it's in by things that happened to you in your life. So, uh, going back, I guess it is almost 40 years, uh, as you know, Sina, I was trained as a family therapist, and I thought family therapy was the, you know, the end all. <clears throat> and I was working with a population of bulimic kids, doing an outcome study. And as I found that uh, straight family therapy didn't really fix their bulimia, I started getting curious about why, and they started talking about these parts. So that's how it all started. I think it would be about 1982. And uh, I got curious. And so these clients, I, I was lucky to have a few that were really articulate about their parts, uh, basically taught it to me. And one of the things I think is unique about IFS is that I brought the systems thinking and the family therapy ways of working with systems to the inner system and found that actually it, it really helps a lot to think about these parts that way and how how they interact as a system, how some of them protect others and some of them are polarized with others and uh, some of them lock others up inside, just like in, in families where some people are, family members are cut off and some family members are in conflict and some have are what we call parentified children. They, they have responsibility for protecting the family in a way they shouldn't because they're kids. The same is true for these inner children, it turns out. So we all have them. Uh, what's somewhat unique about IFS is as I did this work and I would initially have clients tell me about them and then I started to talk to them directly and, uh, and then I would have my clients talk to them and then tell me what they were saying. Uh, what I learned was they aren't what they seem. So 
the rage part isn't a, just a bundle of rage. It actually is what I call a protector who's there to try and keep you safe and will lash out in any, any threat. And if you were to focus on it and get curious about it, you learn that indeed it protects parts of you that were hurt at some point in the past. And it's possible to negotiate permission to go to those parts. And we have a way of actually healing those, what we call exiles, the very vulnerable parts that you locked away because you, you didn't want to think about what happened to you much. And when we heal the exile that uh, the rage protects, then it can transform into its naturally valuable state. So one of the basic assumptions is that we all have them and they're all valuable. There aren't any bad ones. The motto of the model is all parts are welcome. And I've worked with parts that have done heinous things and even those parts, when approached from a curious place, will tell their secret history of how they got forced into the roles they're in. And they aren't what they, they hate doing what they do, but they think it's important. And how much they're frozen in time, they're, they're stuck in these traumas in our past. And they think you're still six years old and that you're still that vulnerable. And so, uh, yeah, that's a very empowering assumption that there aren't any bad ones. The ones in these very extreme roles were forced out of their naturally valuable states, which are often entirely different, sometimes opposite, into the role, in these roles that were maybe necessary when you were six years old, but aren't anymore and still can cause you destruction in your life, but are dying to leave those roles and given a chance and, and they trust it's safe, they'll transform back into their naturally valued states. So, so that's one basic assumption. And then even more, even harder to believe, because that one's really hard for most people to believe by itself. Even harder to believe is that in addition to these parts, there's a kind of essence in everybody that, when accessed, knows how to heal these parts. So that you as a therapist can just get out of the way once you access enough of what I call the self inside of people, the capital S. <clears throat> and how do you access it? Well, back in the day when I was working with these clients, again, kind of using family therapy with their inner systems, I would maybe have a client start working with a part. Let's say I'm having a bulimic kid talk to their critic. <clears throat> and I'm, because I'm, now I'm hip to the fact they aren't what they seem and, and the critic isn't just a bundle of parental voice inside. I'm trying to get my client to actually have a decent conversation with it and get to know it. And suddenly my client gets furious with it. And it reminded me of family sessions where I might be having a teenage girl talk to her critical mother. <clears throat> Suddenly the girl is furious with the mother and we were taught to look around the room and see if somebody isn't covertly cueing the girl that they side against the mother and she's fighting the father's battle for him. And so we were taught to get him to step back out of her line of vision and found that now the girl settles down and we have a decent conversation with her mother. Thought maybe the same thing's happening in this inner system. Maybe as I'm having my client have these dialogues with a critic, 
some part that hates the critic has jumped in and is doing the talking. So I began asking clients, could you ask that one to just step back in there? Or if they suddenly became terrified of the critic or whatever part we're working with, could you have the fear step back? And to my utter amazement, first of all, clients said, okay, it did. And then secondly, they would say, and I would say, now how are you? Now how do you feel toward the critic? It would always be something different and in, in the direction of, of uh, change. So they would say some version of, now I'm just curious about why it calls me names. Seconds earlier they hated it or they were terrified of it. Now they're just curious and calm and confident relative to it. And when they're in that state, the conversation would go well and the critic would reveal its secret history and my client would then feel compassion for this part that had tormented them their, her her whole life and the compassion really really softens that part and then it we can explore what it what it uh, protects and and then get permission to heal that so and that was amazing to me because I was working at the time with people who, if you believe basic attachment theory, had no business having any kind of ego strength because they had been tortured on a daily basis. There was nobody in their their uh, caregiving, uh, you know, subsystem that you could point to that could have given them any of these qualities. So. And that was a challenge for me because I was big into attachment theory, developmental side. But the evidence kept showing over and over that it didn't have to come from the outside. Mm -hmm. That you don't need some other person to have this, that this is just inherent in us. And so there are many, many things. I, I don't want to piss off everybody in your audience. There are many things about attachment <laughs> theory that I totally believe in and think it's a wonderful contribution. It's just this one premise that I'm taking issue with. That we don't have to get this, what I call self, from an external person. And when we get to talking about couples and intimacy, that becomes actually quite important. So, I mean, I'm so oh. go ahead, yeah. Well, I'm just thinking like um, one of the things that I really like about the model is this idea of the multiplicity of self because Simone and I have been talking a lot about how to foster self-compassion in people because it's so hard. I mean, people have such harsh inner critics, especially with a lot of the clients we work with in New York, you know, like really uh, driven professional people who are very harsh with themselves. And it's very hard, like if you think of yourself as one person or one mind or, you know, one part, oneself, whatever, then there's nothing to step back from. You're just that negative thing. Um, so even just thinking on a basic level about parts seems to be really healing and open up the possibility to get curious, get compassionate with yourself. Yeah, very well said, Sina. I mean, that's... Uh yeah, just the language frees people up. Not only do you start to think of yourself differently, particularly if you think of these as good parts and bad roles, but you can be more, you know, you can be more honest with people because you're not saying, I am a racist. You're just saying, yeah, there's a part of me that sometimes spouts this racist stuff and it's just a part of me. 
Or you're not saying, I hate you. You're saying, yeah, there's a part of me that's furious with you right now. It's a very different message to receive also. And something that you said, too, that resonates with me so much is so many of our clients use this language already. And I, I love your model. I use it often. And I, and I find myself using it often following the client's lead. They use the word part and it just like opens up this whole world. And another thing that I, I think is so interesting is sort of the imagination with this model. Like it, it becomes a very visual way rather than just um, thinking about these voices or different feelings where we're, we're like you're creating a whole identity. And I'm wondering if you could speak to kind of how people imagine or conceptualize or put an image to these parts um, and what that what that looks like. Yeah, so um, you use the word imagine and at first I thought of it that way. I thought, okay, this is fun. We're just on this imaginary journey in there. Boy, these people have these wild imaginations. And I also would, I also felt very frustrated because when I tried to do it, I didn't see a thing and I still don't. And it turns out there's a small percentage of us that don't see anything inside. It's like we're doing the work with the lights out. But anyway, um, so for me, clients aren't imagining. They're sort of seeing what they're, what's, it, what's there. So they're entering this other world, and it's a world that, you know, I didn't know at the time, but it's a world that for centuries shamans have been entering in indigenous cultures because so much of the landscape is similar to what uh, is described in, in the shamanic literature. So, and for them it's a very real other world too. So I've come around to believe, number one, these parts are very real. They're not metaphors. They're not imagined. And the world they inhabit is quite real. And what we do in that world has huge consequences for what happens in the outside world. And Sina earlier was talking about self-compassion, and you're right, Sina, it's very hard to have compassion for, you know, your, your global self, um, you, especially when you've got these critics that, that think being compassionate of yourself is being weak, or, you know, is, is getting in the way of them driving you. So, but it's a lot easier if you start to identify some parts of you and you can direct your compassion to that specific place in your body, actually, and see, start a relationship and see how your compassion actually has an impact on this little part of you. So, yeah, uh, anyway. It sort of reminds me, too, of, uh, you know, we did an interview recently with a psychiatrist who specializes in psychedelics and how you know, when, when a person is on a psychedelic, they're able to step away from and look at these different parts of themselves or look at themselves in a very compassionate way. And they are kind of in this, I guess, big S self that you talk about. Um, yeah, let me speak to that because uh, <clears throat> one of the projects that's gotten a lot of press is the MDMA work with PTSD. And it's in uh, phase three trials, so if all that goes well, and it is going well from what I hear, it should be legal in a couple of years. 
to, to be prescribed. And the guy who spearheads that project is named Michael Mithoffer, who's a well-trained IFS therapist, and his wife Annie. And one of the things that uh, was exciting to me was as he would give people the MDMA medicine, uh, and they would access what you said, a huge amount of what I call self. It's like their protectors just melted. And, and, and I, I've tried it myself, and you are in this state of pure compassion and connectedness and all that. That he kept track in, in the first study that he did, and 70% of the people, these uh, PTSD patients, spontaneously started working with their parts in an IFS way. <clears throat> so they, they would suddenly see this angry part that they've got locked in a cage and they would start to work with it without any cueing from the therapist. Because wow. in the protocol they, they didn't have a specific way of doing therapy and, and so that was validating to me that I had stumbled onto a way that people just naturally know, what, know how to do to heal themselves if they're, you know, if you, if you are in the right circumstances and you access a lot of self, you'll spontaneously do this thing that I stumbled onto. Mm -hmm. What is the difference between firefighters and protectors? So firefighters are a class of protectors. So just to help your audience a little bit. So being a systems guy, a family therapist, as I encountered this, this, uh, huge family of parts inside of people, I decided I'd better start to learn how the system operates because I was finding myself making what obviously were mistakes because I would have clients have these big backlash reactions after my sessions. And as I started to explore what was I doing wrong and asking clients what was I doing wrong, I started to learn that we all have parts that, because uh, they got hurt, or they got terrified, or they got shamed in our life, the, those times, those events, when those things happened, impacted the most vulnerable parts of us, the most sensitive parts of us, the most. And after those events, they carry what I call the burden of shame, or terror, or, uh, or hurt. And once they carry those burdens, we don't want anything to do with them because they can constantly give us those feelings. And because they're still stuck in the past in those places, they constantly pull us back into those memories. So without knowing that we're actually locking away our most precious qualities, because they, before they got hurt, they were these inner children who were so playful and creative and joyful and loving intimacy. After they get hurt, we don't want anything to do with them. So we, our other parts, put, put them in a cave or an abyss or a basement somehow. So those we call the exile, and the exiles. And we all, none of us came out of our families and our culture without a bunch of exiles. Um, those who had a lot of abuse and trauma came out with more and more are more afraid of their exiles coming out. So, to keep those exiles locked up and to keep them from being triggered, because when they're triggered, they, 
they do explode out and they can overwhelm you. We have a bunch of parts whose job it is to manage all that. And they'll manage our relationships so we don't let anybody get too close to us. Or, they'll, or people we depend on don't get too distant. Or they'll manage our appearance so that we don't get rejected. Or they'll manage our performance so that we get accolades. And so we call them the managers. <laughs> and often they become the critics. Like they're these parentified inner children. They're, they're in over their heads, they're young, and they don't know what to do but yell at you constantly to get you to behave. Or sometimes they're yelling at you to try and tear down your confidence so you don't take any risks and think that's the way to keep you safe. But uh, most of these critics are in that role. And so they're desperately trying to do all that and they're the parts that keep you in your head or the parts that maybe take care of everybody else and don't let you take care of yourself or there's a variety of what in traditional psychotherapy would be called the defenses. So we all got these managers too but the world has a way of breaking through their defenses and triggering our exiles and when that happens it's like an explosion of pain or shame or terror or loneliness or emptiness or one of those feelings or betrayal and we feel overwhelmed and that's terrifying that being in that state so there has to be another set of parts who when that happens immediately and impulsively goes into action to get you out of that state right now and these what we call firefighters because they're fighting the flames of the exile's emotion will take you to drugs or alcohol or work or um, you know whatever works to get you higher than the flames or to distract you until they burn themselves out mm. kind of like self-destructive behaviors is that oftentimes the form they're thought of as self-destructive behaviors but mm. they're actually self-preserving behaviors Right. Mm. <clears throat> and that's really hard for our culture and, and psychotherapy to get. So when we go, for example, to a cutting part or to a part that uh, is making you starve yourself or a part that's got you addicted to something, and I get my client to be curious about it, which sometimes is very hard because the managers are constantly trying to, to get it to stop. And they... They're criticizing you for allowing it to keep happening. But if you can get those parts to step back and you can get into self where you're curious about it, it'll tell its secret history of how if it didn't do its job, you would feel all this pain or shame or terror, which might trigger some other firefighter that's going to make you commit suicide. So it's actually not self-destructive, it's self-preserving. That's where the system stuff comes in. Does that make sense? Yeah. What are particularly challenging parts to work with? Are there any that seem to be more challenging than, than others? Um, there are. Um, what, what I would say about that is not so much the actual symptom that they cause, but the degree to which there is terror of the exiles in a system 
and or the degree to which there's no trust in self-leadership. So, lots of people, when self couldn't protect you as a little girl, for example, and these other parts had to step up and take over, they lose trust in your ability to handle things. And so, as you start to talk to them about letting you go to these scary places inside, they say, hell no, we're not going to let you, we don't trust you at all, we hardly know you. And so then there's a, a long process sometimes of helping the parts get to know who self is and who it isn't. They still think you're five years old, for example. Mm. Like if I, if I did an exercise with your audience right now and had them ask some of these protectors how old they thought they were, generally you get single digits, half the people. Mm. Mm-hmm. So it's more people who because of what happened to them and how often it happened to them and how much uh, they wound up colluding with the abuser or whatever, um, that's more the parameter of when it's more difficult, it takes longer. Because we work with virtually every symptom. We, it's, there are no contraindications for this except for if for some reason the situation the client's in, or, the, or there are parts of the therap- the client that trigger you, so you can't be in self as a therapist, then it's dangerous for your client. That's something that I've noticed is really difficult with some of my clients, is to distinguish when they're in self, with a capital S, versus one of these managers or firefighters. Um, and I'm wondering how, I mean, I guess both as a therapist, but also as a client, um, to know when you're in that self, you know, mm-hmm. and, and how can you really feel like, okay, this is this, is this capital S, I'm in my authentic um, being. So as a therapist, it's hard unless you know your own self so, pretty well. So a lot of our trainings are designed to help therapists know their parts and know their self, because when you can get a real felt sense of your own, then it's a lot easier to see it in your clients and know when it's not there. But in, in, and in general, it's a problem, as you say, because most of us, and you describe these high-powered Manhattan clients, uh, are very, what we call, blended with certain parts that think they're your, the, the client. They think they're the client. And they've been in power, they've been dominating the client for most of their lives. So they, they have good reason to think that. Uh, so some of it takes good parts detection on the part of the therapist who has to say, I get that you think this is who you are, but I promise it's just a part of you. And actually you'll be relieved to find out who you really are. And, you know, with high-powered clients, sometimes that's a challenge to say that to them. Especially when they're getting a lot of love and affirmation from the outside world for the part that they're in. Exactly. Usually, I don't know about you, but those clients usually don't come in until their world crashes. You know, right. until they, the big divorce yeah. or the, they lost their job for some reason. Or, you know, or somehow the striving, you know, caused them to have a breakdown of some kind. Right. So I imagine if we think about couples work, that if you have two people uh, in therapy together, 
<laughs> that's like a lot of parts. It's a lot of parts, you know? <laughs> parts. Including your own. Multiple systems <laughs> yeah. all interacting. The room is crowded. <laughs> it's very crowded, yeah. So again, systems thinking comes in handy. So, uh, one, yeah, I'll give you a, a bit of a simplified version, but as I was saying earlier, we all have these exiles, and we all came out of our families with the message that there's somebody out there that's going to make your exiles finally feel good. And so we go around looking for that, what I call redeemer. You know, when you carry a lot of worthlessness, and you got that from your, your father, let's say, then and you can't get him to redeem you. You can't get him to say, no, I take it back, you're not worthless. Then you're going to go around looking for somebody who resembles your father. And when you find that person, you're going to have a big infatuation. It's going to be a big kick. Because finally this person is reversing the worthlessness. Unfortunately, that person usually does resemble your father, and at some point they give you the same message which goes right to the heart of that exile again and then you get desperate to get them to change back and change their mind or your protectors will start to get you to change more so that you lose weight or you stop yelling so that they like you again or if those don't work you'll, you'll go to oh this wasn't the right redeemer after all and that guy's still out there and I've got to keep looking for him or you give up on a human being and you go to work or drugs or some other thing. So that's the dilemma most of us are in because of this belief that our partner should take care of our exiles. And so a lot of our couples work is getting people to do what we call a U-turn in their focus. Instead of a, a focusing out there on your partner, to turn the focus back on yourself and begin to take care of your exiles yourself. Mm. So you become the primary caretaker to your own exiles that then frees up your partner so that your partner can take care of their own exiles and, and can be the secondary caretaker of your exiles. <clears throat> and most couples therapies have that reversed. They're still trying to work it out so that each partner takes care of the other somehow. Um, and again, it's a, it's a big, uh, it's a tough sell in our culture because most all of us still want our partner to do that for us. Uh, and uh, the other thing I'll say is that most couples come in in parts wars. So it's protectors battling protectors in some of the patterns that I just mentioned. And so a lot of times we have to just say stop. I want both of you to stop and focus inside and find the part of you that was just talking. And don't come back out until you can speak for that part with an open heart instead of from the part when it was talking a minute ago. And also maybe stay inside and see if you can find the part it was protecting the exile was protecting, and see if you can speak for both of those things. Mm. And what we find is when people can speak for, from self, from an open heart, 
speak for their parts rather than from their parts, it's both much easier for their partner to hear and it's much more accurate. You know, it's much more accurate when I'm angry at my wife, Jean, to say, you know, there's a part of me you just triggered and it, it also triggered this part that feels a lot of shame. And then to say, I hate the way you just said that. It's just a totally different message. Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. so ideally we're trying to help each partner stay in self and communicate self to self rather than protector to protector. And I imagine it's a lot less blaming when you're getting frustrated with a part of your partner rather than attacking the partner's full character. That that already kind of softens. Yeah, exactly. Um, Jean will kill me for saying this, but we had a bit of a fight this morning. <laughs> and it just helped me to remember, okay, there's that angry part. Okay. Mm. And I could just tell myself. Mm. She'll come yeah. back. She'll be back in a little while. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you and your wife use a lot of this language? Do you kind of have that? Must to an obnoxious really degree to our friends. <laughs> <laughs> Can you give an example of how the two of you might work through something using the language of parts? Yeah, you know, much of the time we'll both get very triggered and we'll speak from these protectors and then we'll pause. And I'll say, okay, let's both go inside. And uh, we'll kind of walk or talk. We'll find the part. Uh, try and give you a concrete example. Um, so I was supposed to pick up the... Our little dog uh, had a surgery a couple months ago. And it has recovered pretty well. And we're still not supposed to let him run around the house. And... I forgot, and so when she came upstairs, he came. Sadie came dashing toward her, and so she got very angry, rightfully so, and and spoke to me. Uh, in a, you know, she has a part that thinks if she shames me enough, I'll finally get it, and so she spoke from that part. A, a milder version of what it used to do, and. Um, and so I got defensive right away because there's a part of me that carries a lot of shame. And so if that part is ever triggered in exile, then this big protector defender has to come up. And, you know, I was clearly in the wrong, but I had to say things about how, uh, you know, she's, it's been two months and she looks fine and, you know, that kind of thing. And so then we both kind of walked away and then came back and I was able to say, I'm sorry I let that, that defender take over. Uh, I'm sorry I forgot about Sadie and how she shouldn't do that. And uh, uh, I'll, I'll try to do better. And then she could, her protector backed off and she could hear it. So something like that. Yeah. And and in those moments, I mean, it's it, it's a really beautiful example. And I imagine for some examples, it can be really activating and that exile is really kind of getting um, flaring up. What would you do in that moment? You know, if, if that exile was feeling a lot of shame, like how how would you 
comfort or attend to that part? Yeah, so that's a good question. So, you know, the exile feels a lot of shame. And then another part, because I see how angry she is, another part gets scared that, you know, that I'm going to lose her somehow or it's irrational, you know, but it still has that sense. And um, that or that she's going to stay that way for a long time, which isn't true anymore either. So I have to go in, and part of the, this is part of the, and find those two parts, and to the one who's afraid of that, just say, remember that's just a part of her, and I tr- trust me, she'll be back. If I can come back, she'll come back, and uh, and just don't, <laughs> don't take over. You don't have. There's no need for that. You can just trust me. And then the shame one, I know this resembled ways you've been shamed in the past, but it's not the same at all. And uh, I love you, and there's nothing bad about you, and so things like that. And then I start to feel a lot better, and then my protector calms down, and then I can go speak for them. We invite you to spend the next few moments Just listen. Brought to you by Non, spelled N-O-N, the sound meditation app for iPhone, where no two sessions are alike. Why is it that our parts become uh, so activated with our partners, in a in a reactive and hurtful way? Not you know they become activated in this very hurtful way sometimes with the ones that we love the most. Exactly because they're the ones we've allowed to get the closest. And they're the ones our, our exiles have, have uh, grafted onto. So there's nobody who can hurt us like them. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, we need to protect ourselves all the more because we're so vulnerable. Yeah, we want so badly to be loved and accepted. Yeah, and we really are depending on that person to get that. Yeah. How do these parts and exiles play out uh, in intimacy and sexuality? Well, that's some of what we're talking about now. You know, um, self, there's a, there, I mentioned four of the eight C's that are qualities of self. So curiosity, calm, confidence, compassion, and then also creativity, courage, uh, clarity and connectedness and connectedness there's there's a desire in self that's innate to connect to another person in a deep way so there's a desire for self to self connectedness 
and a lot of what I would I think is is real intimacy is that is not the exile to protect your connectedness that a lot of us find think of, of as love if you follow what I was saying earlier mm-hmm. it's more this heart to heart self to self love I mean, that <clears throat> doesn't begin with a C but love is also a quality of self so intimacy involves accessing that in each person or even in one person because self is contagious so if I can be in self that will be like a tuning fork for my wife's self and then we can have this much more self to self intimate communication and a lot of intimacy is then uh, telling each other about our inner worlds and feeling seen, feeling witnessed by the other. Intimacy is the sense of finally somebody knows you. You don't have to hide from that person. You can be yourself with somebody finally. Which I think is so healing because a lot of um, sexual problems or intimacy problems come when people are in performance in some way, like whether it's having to be, you know, this like hyper-masculine guy or women do sometimes a lot of self-monitoring during sex um, of their bodies or, you know, in other ways. So that makes a lot of sense that in order to move out of that and into real intimacy, you have to get into, you have to get out of performance and into the self. Yeah, and it's, it's hard to do if you worry about your partner's evaluation of your performance. And, and it generally takes, at least my experience, um, takes a while before that worry goes away. And that worried part, and, and then paradoxically, that worried part interferes with your performance. So it becomes a vicious circle that way. Right. Yeah, and I also think about the ways that sex, I mean, oftentimes we see it as managers and the way people kind of get small and shrink back and, and withdraw, but also the way, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about how a firefighter, what a firefighter would look like in sex, and, and that oftentimes sex is used um, kind of as a, as, as a defense to stay disconnected. Exactly, um, yeah. Um, yeah, a lot of men in particular, and I used to have a firefighter that can just totally consume you in this, uh, what's the right word, high-powered sexual release. Right. Such that your partner doesn't matter that much who they are. It's more just the gratification of, of the testosterone-driven uh, experience. And... Uh, <clears throat> And yeah, like you said, that's very disconnecting. The person feels like an object, their partner, because they are seen that way. It's not an accident that they feel like an object. So that's yeah, that's the the sexual firefighter. And then a lot of people with um, trauma histories have managers that'll try to manage sex. You know, they'll try to. Uh, not surrender to the experience and constantly monitor what they allow their partner to do. Mm. And that's no fun either. Right. Mm -hmm. What do you think about 
um, people who engage in role play or you know domination and submission, um, where they're in a way having it can either be a performance mode or it can be play. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think a lot depends on where it comes from and how it feels ultimately to the people afterwards. You know, there are, I've worked with female clients, for example, who will go along with a lot of that just to keep the partner happy. But afterwards, they do feel like an object and they feel shamed or slimed, you know. And so, and I've worked with, with uh, clients also who get into it and afterwards they feel, you know, that was so much fun. I really got a kick out of it. Now, again, you got to be careful because there are sex addicts, quote unquote, who are doing that stuff just to stay away from their exiles. And they've got to do it a lot. And yeah, it is a kick. And, you know, a lot of times when you first have a client go to the part that's doing that and you, you say, so why do you do this for her? The part will say, duh, what do you mean? It's, it's a rush, it's a kick, I love it. But if you stay with it and you keep asking the part, what are you afraid would happen if you didn't do this? You'll hear, well, she'd be very empty or she'd be very depressed or she'd be very... So, you know, a lot of it depends on the place from which you're doing it. Because I do think that's such a good point, Sina, because I think sex is a is a um, arena that a lot of people can can be playful with different roles. And it's interesting to think about self taking on different parts. Um, right, because I'm thinking a lot Even of... Even letting, little... letting certain parts just take over. Right. It can be a lot of fun. Right. Mm -hmm. In various contexts. You don't want right. to be in self all the time. Right. Here's right. another but... way to think of the difference. So, whereas the addict doesn't really have a choice. They, these parts do take over regardless of what they want. It, when it's self-led, you're choosing to let parts take over for a period of time. Okay. It's more flexible, it sounds like. That's a helpful distinction. Yeah. Yeah, that the self has choice. Yeah. And yeah. again, addicted people don't have choice. Right. Their, their parts are just terrified. If they don't do this, Something terrible is going to happen. Right, right. So a lot of our listeners out there are single and dating. And I'm wondering um, what kind of parts tend to come up when you're getting to know someone, you know, versus a long-term relationship. Because I think a lot of people that those parts, those protective parts can get very activated when you're, when you're meeting someone. Yeah, I mean, uh, just going back to my dating times, I was pretty shy as a, uh, you know, I almost never talked to a, a girl when I was a, a kid in high school or, mm -hmm. I, and then I, for various reasons, got the courage to start doing that in college. But yeah, I would be very, very manager driven. I'd be very worried. Parts in the background, you know, would be constantly monitoring how I was coming across and, mm. and mm -hmm. oh no, don't say that. Oh no. <laughs> oh. And so, yeah, it, it's very awkward for a lot of people in the beginning because it is your managers that are trying to present this. The best self, right? Your best self. You're doing sales, basically. <laughs> and, um, and so, yeah, it can be a challenge to get those parts 
to let you be yourself. And what I what we call being yourself is being your capital S self, where you you don't worry so much about the reaction of the other person. You're just uh, trying to enjoy the moment with that person. And uh, and the, I mean the other thing is, and again, it depends on which end you're at, because part of why I was so nervous is that I would always pick women who were out of my range, really, probably. And so if you're at the low end and, and you're going for somebody at the high end, the high end person is going to have a part constantly evaluating or, or critical of, of you for being even talking to this person, maybe. Or So you've got all this noise happening in the background. Uh, as you're you're trying to date, and uh, yeah. But even that belief that you're out of or you're not in someone's range sounds like a protect. That was a protect. That was a manager right there. Absolutely. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and it was probably true, but still. <laughs> yeah, those parts sound like they can get in the way of really tapping into how the other person is making you feel, right? what what the connection really is like, yeah, or what it could potentially be like. They also have the power to, dis like, uh, one of those C words is clarity. Uh, so there are parts that have the power to make you s distort your vision of people and make you either, if, if it's, uh, you know, one of these infatuation things, make the person look much better than they actually look, or if it's a protector trying to keep you from risking, make the person look uglier than they actually look. Right. And when we're so preoccupied with rejection or how we come across, it's so hard to consider what we're interested in with the person in front of us. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So as we're coming to a close, you know, Right now, I'm just thinking about how this is a really difficult time for a lot of people, uh, you know, being in quarantine. Yeah, particularly single people. Particularly yes. single people, yeah. Are you noticing anything about... You know, I, I shouldn't say that because there are a lot... I shouldn't say that because I think there are a lot of uh, couples who are... Uh, this is terrible time for, too. You know, the things that were bothering them about each other just get just get exaggerated magnified magnified and they got no escape from each other mm -hmm. especially if you don't have a, enough space so yeah, yeah. Okay. do you notice anything about the the parts that are coming up for people right now in particular when we're in this time where a lot of people I think are feeling scared yeah uh, so I've done some uh, we, we have a free what you call it, video thing. Webinar? Mm -hmm. Webinar, yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> and I've done a few of those now, and helping people find the scared part and, you know, separate from it, because it's, right now, for many people, totally blended with them. They are that scared little kid. And, and instead of being blended with it, actually start to help it. And there's, you know, a pretty simple process to do that for most people, which makes for a big difference, actually, when you're not totally uh, absorbed by all that fear. So, yeah, fear comes up a lot, loneliness. Uh, you know, I, we have a friend who's 
who was starting to date again. And uh, it's real hard to date online this way, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's all much more complicated. Although you can see what parts come up for people right now in this time of crisis, I guess, if you're, if you're dating someone and you do a, an assessment of how they handle a crisis. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's a kind of test. Right. Absolutely. And I do have a good friend who was terrified of dating for a really long time. She was in an accident and she's in a wheelchair now. And she's interestingly finding that dating is so slow. You know, you're, you're getting to know someone first by chat and then by phone and then by video. And she just recently went on the first walk with this with this person six feet apart. And it's really been a way to kind of not overwhelm her with all her fears. Um, so I think for some people, I mean, I, I, I really, I mean, it's, I want to honor a lot of people that I think are struggling and make it so much more difficult now. But I think for some, there's a way that this is slowing things down and actually making it more tolerable in some ways too. Maybe allowing the manager to step back a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's not to so threatening to do it online at first. Right. Uh, maybe with that, that amount of distance. So right. could be. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Are there any good questions people can ask themselves to access their self or, you know, reflect on their part, a part that's coming up? Anything you recommend people um, ask themselves in moments when they're, when they're feeling a part come up or they're getting triggered? Yeah, it's... It's a little hard when you don't have a felt sense of self, but so because I've done this for a long time, when I get triggered, and I, I you know, you just know you're triggered. You, you don't know why, you don't even know what it's about, but I just know I'm very, very activated for some reason. Then my parts trust that it's good to let me just start asking that question inside. What's going on? Why did, you, why did you come and take over just now? What are you afraid would happen if you didn't? So just some of those kinds of questions. And just that process of starting to ask leads to a separation. So you're not so blended with the part because now you see it as something that's separate from you and you're starting to ask it questions. So to do that, you kind of have to buy into the idea of these parts that that they're there and they, they'll respond to your, your questions. But once you get that marched, then you can start that inner conversation. And the, the main thing is to just be curious. Stay in that C word, curiosity. And don't, you know, a lot of people who've done a lot of other kinds of therapies, they have a narrator part that feels like it's got to answer those questions because it did in the, in the therapy they were in. You follow what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So they'll ask themselves right. a question but then the thinking, the intellectualizing, intellectual part comes in and gives the answer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's the other thing I would do, especially in New York, <laughs> and it's also true in Boston here. Um, I'm constantly getting clients to ask that intellectual part to step back mm. and ask the question again and just wait for an answer to come from that place in your body. Don't think of the answer. So yeah. that would be the first step, would be to get people out of their heads that way mm -hmm. and then ask the question and then wait for the answer to come. Mm -hmm. I love that. 
Yeah, it sounds yeah. like being really open to what emerges is a really important process in this. Mm-hmm. And being very mindful of what's happening in the body. That's right. It's it's sort of similar to mindfulness where you're you're just separating and waiting and being very accepting of whatever else comes. Right. Right. And that's that's the first step and then, you know, we do a lot of interacting. We do a lot of loving of the parts and so on. It's many steps after that, but that's a great first step. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. So how can people get in touch with you? or? Um, it's hard to get in touch with me directly. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, our website is ifs-institute.com. And, uh, yeah, there are a lot of people that will respond to questions and... All our trainings are listed, which are now online, and uh, uh, we have a store where there are lots of books and other re- resources. So, and what's next for you, professionally? Are you are there any interesting projects you're working on now? Yeah, I'm actually um, working on a book on IFS, the spirituality of IFS, for sounds true. I did a uh, I did a um, audio course for them on that topic and they wanted to turn it into a book and uh, so it's that's been a fascinating project that's mm. one of my big interests right now is is, is the spirituality of this so wow. it's fun to, fun to play with that yeah can you I'm, I'm just now I'm really curious about that can you give us a little bit of like a insight into what you're going to be talking about oh it's book? it's a huge topic but you know what I'm calling self I've come to believe isn't just uh, ego strength or you know the kind of words that psychologists use for it but and, and I came to this because it can't be damaged that's the main reason because at first I was trying to find a psychological analog for it and it just didn't hold up because there's nothing in psychology that says there's something in you that can't be damaged, that knows how to heal, and has all these qualities. And then people started to say, well, maybe it's similar to Buddha nature, or maybe it's similar to a soul, or maybe it's similar to um, self is the word in Hinduism, actually, or maybe it's... And so I started to explore all that. And I actually co-authored a book called Many Minds, One Self, where we go through every spiritual tradition and look at, uh, especially the contemplative sides of the traditions, and look at the way they describe what we're calling self, and it's all the same, really. So I started to see what we're accessing as a spiritual something inside of us that actually is connected to, to something much bigger spiritually. Mm. And this sounds like something humans have been exploring for a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah beautiful. And, and, and really relates to the MDMA work, too. Um, connecting to yourself and then tapping into something bigger. Having the yeah. spiritual experiences yeah. that come with those right. things. Absolutely. And uh, the other thing, the other point I'm going to make is so many spiritual traditions misunderstand parts. So, and see them as the ego. And the ego has a bad name in spirituality. The ego is a pest at best, and the enemy at worst, and so the way you meditate is to 
to battle with your ego or your monkey mind or you know whatever pejorative names they have for it so I'm just trying to say that's a bunch of managers trying to just trying their best they're just a bunch of little kids and here you shame them even more and there are so many people that come to spiritual traditions with a trauma history with the hope of using the meditation to stay away from their exiles it's what's called a spiritual bypass right and so anyway i'm going into all of that in some depth so oh that sounds really interesting yeah excited for the book to come out yeah me too it's gonna be a while <laughs> well thank you so much for joining us this was great such a pleasure really enjoyed it yeah Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. To stay in touch with us, sign up for our quarterly newsletter at lovelink.co, where we share our favorite articles and resources about love, sex, and relationships. Also, in future episodes, we plan on answering listener questions. So if you'd like your questions featured on our show, send us a voice memo using the Anchor app or send it directly to our email, info at lovelink.co. And if you have a second, truly, the best way you can help support us is to rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. Just scroll to the bottom of the Loveling show page and let us know what you think. We thank you all again so much for listening. We're truly touched you take the time out of your busy schedule for us. Until next time. Mm-hmm.